So glad you're here this morning, or rather this afternoon now, and hope that you'll come back tonight as we gather to pray at 6 o'clock for our Fresh Encounter service. We uh, will have a little gathering of some elders at 5 in our prayer room if there's something in particular on a personal level that you'd like to be prayed for. But in the corporate gathering, we're going to have some uh, time tonight to pray for new members that will be joining. We'll pray for some folks with significant health needs, also for a family, um, a couple families in our church that are in the neighborhood where uh, the Blackburns um, live, and uh, just some unusual opportunities there related just to the tragedy of what happened to Amanda, and want to pray for our um, church members who are there on the ground. And then also, if you have a prodigal son, daughter, father, mother, family member, or something, uh, we're going to pray for prodigals tonight, so you need to come and uh, be a part of that. That's at 6 o'clock. And then don't forget Christmas Eve service coming up. We have three of them here and then one at Fisher's. Great opportunity to invite a um, person at work or a, a neighbor or a friend. Um, people will come to a Christmas Eve service. So um, use that as an opportunity to platform uh, the gospel in people's lives. Let's pray. Ask the Lord to help us. God, come now, please, with your spirit and your word. We can be greatly helped and have hearts and minds shaped in accordance with your word. We thank you that you are a God who is among us and with us, and we pray now that you would come in this moment and be our teacher from Luke 2, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I'm sure that your family, like mine, has some traditions that, they, that you celebrate uh, during this time of year, some things that you normally do. When uh, I was a young child, there were a number of things in our home growing up that we did. For instance, there was a calendar that was a countdown to Christmas with candy canes for each day. And every day that went by, I got to take a candy cane and, and be able to eat it. And I'm not sure if it made Christmas come any faster or if it actually made it felt like it took forever to get there, but it was what it was in our home. We also celebrated Christmas as a family on Christmas Eve because on Christmas morning, we had to go over to my grandparents. I don't say have to, we wanted to, at least most of the years we wanted to. And so we always had two Christmases that we would celebrate together. And on that Christmas Eve morning, my mom would normally make cinnamon rolls and orange juice and good coffee. And even today, the smell of cinnamon rolls kind of brings back a, a bit of a holiday memory for me. My sister and I had a tradition that we would wake up as early as humanly possible uh, to wait for Christmas morning to come. My parents had a, had a rule, which um, I'm not sure if it's in the Bible or not, but they said that parents were not allowed to get up before 7 o'clock on Christmas morning. And so while we got up early, we'd play things like Monopoly and Hungry Hippos and other kinds of board games, just kind of occupying ourselves until... The, the morning would finally come. And then what we would do is we would, we'd all get up, we'd be served the cinnamon rolls, the oranges, the coffee. We'd gather in the living room, that one part of our house that we used five times a year. And so we'd gather there and distribute all the gifts and pretend as though no one was counting them. And after we had all of those gift ga gifts that were gathered, after all the cinnamon rolls had been distributed, all the coffee had been poured, there was one last thing that needed to happen. My father would open the Bible, and he would read Luke chapter 2, and he would then pray and give thanks to God for the special moment that we were about to share. Now, I put my faith in Christ at a fairly, fairly early age, and I loved the Bible, but if I'm honest, in that moment, I did not like Luke chapter 2. <laughs> 
Luke 2 served as a barrier to what I really wanted. And so as I was hearing Luke chapter 2, in the back of my mind, there's this thought that's just like, just hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. So when I hear Luke 2, it's kind of a loaded text for me. On the one hand, I either think of that moment, or secondly, I can't get out of my head, Linus reading it in the Charlie Brown Christmas special. So. What I want to do this morning is try and reclaim Luke chapter 2 and remind you why this is in the Bible. That really, it's an amazing um, account of the good news that has been declared, which essentially is a baby lying in a manger. So what I want to do is unpack the story of Christmas and then apply it to our lives and hopefully some things that will be of encouragement and help to you. Luke writes the narrative of Jesus' birth in order to provide a context and framework for the overall gospel message that he's recording in his narrative so that believers can have confidence in what they've been taught and what they've believed. So the purpose of Luke 2 then is to explain how did Jesus come into the world? Where did it all begin? So Luke begins first here with, a, with the setting. The birth of Jesus took place under the sovereign direction of God in the midst of a host of normal circumstances in life. Look at verse one. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Text begins within those days. Luke doesn't give a specific date. It's not what he's interested in doing. Rather, what he's doing is to explain the meaning connected to Jesus' birth. So in those days, what were those days characterized? Well, he mentions Caesar Augustus. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Caesar Augustus, do you know much about him? You should. I spent some time this week, actually more time than what I should, researching Caesar Augustus. Once I got in, I just couldn't stop. After about an hour and a half, I said, wait, 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 wait. This message is not about Caesar Augustus. And as interesting as this is, it's only gonna be a paragraph in my sermon, so I had to put it aside. So Friday, I went to Carmel Library, and I got a big biography on, on Caesar Augustus, and I'm on page 110 right now. So I got all kinds of things I can tell you about Caesar Augustus, but not this morning. We just have a few sentences here. So what you know anything about him? He was the grandnephew of Julius Caesar. At Caesar's assassination, uh, Augustus, or he was born Gaius Octavius, was named as his heir and was officially an adopted then son. And after Octavius defeated Cassius and Brutus, the assassins of Julius Caesar, he consolidated power, shared it for a little while with two other leaders in Rome, and then eventually became the singular leader of the Roman Empire. And in 27 BC, the Roman Senate conferred on him the title of Augustus, which means the exalted one. And by the way, our month August comes from his name. He reigned for 44 years. 
tried to bring order to a chaotic empire that was filled with all kinds of infighting and civil wars, even enacting very specific economic reforms. And it may very well be that the registration that we read about in verse 1 was part of his attempt to bring order and structure to the chaotic Roman Empire that he inherited after the assassination of Julius Caesar. Whatever it was, this particular decree and this particular registration would have been a marker for many people in those days. They would have known exactly the time period in which Jesus was born. What's more, to mention the name Caesar Augustus was to appeal to the most powerful known man in that day. And so the writing of Luke here is intentional in that he mentions Caesar Augustus because the Messiah is going to come underneath the rule of this Caesar, but eventually, as we will see uh, in the life of Christ, he becomes and is identified as Lord and Christ, that Caesar isn't Lord, but Jesus is. Verse 2, another ruler is mentioned named Quirinius in Syria. What Luke exactly means by this reference and the mention of the first registration is not entirely clear. He says this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, we know that Quirinius reigned in Syria from 6 to 7 AD and that he conducted a census in 6 AD. Luke records this in Acts chapter 5. But that particular census in Acts 5 cannot be the same one because... um, Luke chapter 2 has to happen before the death of Herod, which took place in A.D. 4. So we know whatever's going on here happens prior to A.D. 4, and that this census in A.D. 6 is not the one that um, Luke has in mind. A couple solutions to this if you're interested. If you're not, just bear with me for a moment. Um, It could be that when it says that he is the governor of Syria, it may mean that he was the administrator or the ruler that was in charge of this census that Um, Julius Caesar had decreed, or the word first could mean something different in the Greek. It says this was the first registration. That word can also mean before, so you could translate the verse this way, this registration was before Quirinius was the governor of Syria. So regardless, what Luke is trying to do is to narrow our focus a little bit in terms of when exactly did this happen without giving us a date. The effect of this must have been significant and and a bit traumatic. Look at verse 3, and all went to be registered, each to their their own town, or rather their hometown. So think where you grew up for a moment. And for some of you, you grew up in Indiana, and so for you to go back to your hometown is like to go back to Brownsburg. Well, that's not a big deal. Others of us, Kalamazoo, Michigan would be mine. And maybe yours is Boston, Massachusetts, or some other really cool place like Rochester, Minnesota, or something like that. And so if everyone has to go back to their hometown, you can imagine the kind of uh, transportation and flux that's happening, that everyone is now on the roads traveling. If we all have to go back to our hometown to be registered, I would imagine that every person who experienced that remembered when they were all asked to do that. Apparently, it was a way for Rome to get an accurate count of the people, and so it was ordered. Now, why does Luke begin this way? I think what he's doing here is setting the birth of Jesus in the midst of the Roman Empire, in the midst of taxation, in the midst of a census, in the midst of leaders whose names would have marked the era in which they lived. 
And in many respects, what Luke is doing here is setting the birth of Jesus in very common and typical human history. Kings are ruling, taxes are being levied, a census is being taken, but the birth of Jesus will be anything but typical, as we'll come to see in a moment. So that's the setting. Verses four to six provide the information on the birth of Jesus. And Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. So this is only the second time that Joseph is mentioned in Luke's narrative. The first time was in chapter one in verse 27, where Luke describes Mary as a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And so what we see is twice within two chapters, Joseph's name is mentioned along with this um, context of of the house of David. We see it, we hear it in verse 27 of chapter one, and we also read it in chapter two when he says, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So what's happening here is Luke is making a very important point about Mary and about Joseph. About Mary, that she's betrothed, that she's a virgin, that Joseph is not the biological father, rather the Holy Spirit is, according to Luke 1.35. And yet Joseph does provide an important family connection legally to the Davidic line. There was a promise that God had made to David that a descendant from him would reign over Israel forever. And as we'll see in a moment, part of the beauty of what's happening here is that God is fulfilling that historic promise to his people. We also learn about their itinerary, where they went and what they did. He went up from Galilee, that's where he and Mary lived, from the town of Nazareth. It was a a small, insignificant town kind of isolated, it lay sort of outside the mainstream of uh, Jewish life. Think of it like, I don't know, Greensburg, or Greenville, or mm, Broad Ripple. No, I can't use that, right? So something that was outside of the city, outside of the, the boundaries, it lay outside of the mainstream of Jewish life. That was Nazareth. But Bethlehem, on the other hand, had historical significance. It was the city of David. It was the birthplace of the famous king of Israel. Bethlehem would have been a small village. It was about five miles south of the capital city of Jerusalem. Bethlehem is significant because there was a prophecy over it, not only because it was the birthplace of David, but Micah 5.2 predicted that the Messiah would come from the city of Bethlehem. Here's what Micah said. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And so the prediction was that from Bethlehem would come the future leader, the future Messiah. When Herod learned this in Matthew 2, after the wise men came, Bethlehem became known for something else. It became known for a terrible infant genocide as the psychopathic king, Herod, attempted to eliminate all challengers to his throne and killed all of the children within a particular window of when Jesus had been born. So it was an important and also tragic village. Verse five, we learn about the specifics of the birth. The text says, 
to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Mary wasn't required to go with Joseph, but apparently she did. We don't know exactly why. Maybe Joseph didn't want to leave her in Nazareth because of how impending the birth was. A number of things in the text are important to note. It says she gave birth to her firstborn son. This sets up Jesus for the dedication at the temple that will happen in Luke 2, 22 and following. The statement of being her firstborn is also connected to the virgin birth in that the text could have said her only son, but we know that after Mary and Joseph were married, after the birth of Jesus, that they had other children. So the firstborn terminology is a better way to describe Jesus. What's more, it describes the Christ child as being wrapped in swaddling cloth, a long piece of linen or, a, or strips of cloth that were used to tightly wrap babies in order to limit their movement. I remember when we were new parents and the OB nurse taught me how to swaddle a baby and how you take the big blanket and tuck it in and then tuck it in and then flip it up. Oh, that's how you're supposed to do it. That's how we did it. And the point was so that the baby couldn't move um, and couldn't flare their arms or that there was controlled and that sense of comfort. And this is what is done to Jesus. It says, she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, either some sort of trough used for feeding or maybe even an entire crib, like a large crib, where straw or other type of food was kept. And it says, in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, I don't know what you have in your head in, in, as an image of the inn, maybe a sort of bricker building or a blocked building. Some New Testament scholars suggest that there was no such inn like we think of it that way, but rather maybe a common area where travelers would, would um, retire for shelter in the evening. So I think kind of like a, a public large camping spot where they all would gather. And it's possible that <clears throat> Mary and Joseph were not necessarily turned away by that poor innkeeper who has forever been maligned. But instead, they simply decided to go someplace more private where Mary could give birth, because in that setting, it wouldn't have been appropriate or right to give birth in the middle of a sort of common area. And so they retired to a, a small stable or manger area that was more appropriate, at least in terms of its privacy, for labor and delivery. The point of all this, more than anything else, is that the Christ child was born in humble circumstances. So in the context, historically, of a mighty empire of Rome and imperial rulers like Caesar and ruthless kings like Herod and powerful armies, here is the Messiah who's born in a tiny village and in a manger. The, the irony is intentional. Here is the entrance of the Christ child, and the way in which he enters the world becomes a harbinger for the life of Jesus and the eventual message of the gospel, namely that God will humble the exalted and he will exalt the humble. Think, for instance, of what 1 Peter says, that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So, the Christmas story is embedded with a clear message that will 
take full stage in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus about 30 years from Luke 2. But what Luke wants to highlight at this point is that the entrance of the Messiah into the world was much different than anyone might have thought or even predicted. That deliverance for God's people is coming, but not as you might expect it. There is good news to share, but it involves a very unlikely reality that deliverance is coming from a baby who's lying in a manger. So that's the birth, that's the setting. What about the announcement? You know, the birth of every baby requires an announcement, doesn't it? Whether it's your child or someone else's, we love to announce when the baby is born, especially if it's a deliverer or an heir to a throne or those, um, someone who people have waited for for years, they need to be announced and announced royally. Remember, what, like, for instance, when uh, Prince George was born to William and Kate, the whole world waited. That poor child is probably the most photographed baby on the planet. So the announcement of Jesus' birth becomes a spectacular moment, but for only a few people. And they are as unlikely as the circumstances surrounding his birth. The divine announcement was made to a group of shepherds. They're unlikely, and it's ironic that the announcement would come to them, because shepherds were not a well-respected lot. They were not part of the um, mainstream of the community. They were considered unclean by standards of the law, and they had a reputation for being dishonest. The fact that they're keeping watch over their flock by night means that they're outside of the city of Bethlehem and they are living outdoors, sleeping with uh, their sheep as their sheep graze or rest. And what we find is that the first people to learn about the birth of the Messiah are those who are literally outsiders or at the margins of society. And this is what Jesus will do. He'll take the marginal people and he'll bring them in. What happens next must have been a sight to behold. Verse nine, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. So it's a single angel, and it says the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. So this angel appears, the glory of the angel then floods the shepherds, so they're minding their own business, watching their flocks, all of a sudden, boom, the angel appears, and there's light all around them, and they were afraid. And that's very common when someone meets an angel. They're often afraid. Uh, Zechariah was afraid in the temple. Mary was afraid when the angel spoke to her. And yet in all three cases, Zechariah and Mary and the shepherds, there's this sort of um, structure as to how the conversation goes. The angel appears, people are afraid, a word of assurance is given, a message is then delivered, and then a sign is provided. Verse 10, the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news, that's the word that we get our word evangelism, you, meaning good, angelion, message, a good message or good news. I bring you good news, <clears throat> of great joy that will be for all the people. So there's this sense that the message of the gospel is now going to be spread just even beyond the people of Israel. For unto you is born this day, in other words, this, this day is changing everything, 
in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. That language, Christ the Lord, is, is very important. It, it's, it's the linkage of both the Messiah and King. And what we see is Christ becomes now this, this beautiful merger of one who will redeem and one who will conquer, Christ the Lord. It's the same type of title that Peter uses in his sermon at Pentecost where he tells the people of the crowd, this man who you crucified, God made both Lord and Christ. In other words, the, the condemnation on them was you just killed the Messiah, and oh, by the way, he's also King of kings and Lord of lords. The sign they are given, these shepherds, is that there's a baby Verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. It must have struck them as odd, the Messiah as a baby and a manger. Then what happens next must have been unbelievable. Just let your imagination take you there for a moment. So you got one angel communicating this, and then all of a sudden the whole sky lights up with a multitude, the Bible says, of heavenly hosts. So the, that, that phrase means the armies of God. The night sky is now filled with them, and these angels join together in declaring glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Here is really the essence in summary form of the gospel. Glory to God, that's the end. Of all things, glory to God. In fact, the essence of sin is the exchange of God's glory for our own, that we've fallen short of his glory. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those, the NIV puts it this way, on whom his favor rests. So there's peace to those on whom God's favor rests. Well, how does God's favor rest on anyone? How do they receive peace? By having God's favor rest on them. Well, that's what the life of Christ is all about, that eventually he'll grow, he'll die on a cross, he'll pay atonement for our sins so that anyone who puts their trust in Christ can have peace with God and in so have the favor of God. Or as the book of Romans chapter five puts it, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So within the announcement of the angels is the essence of what the gospel is all about. So if you're here today and not yet a follower of Jesus, you need to know that God's peace can rest on you and God's favor can rest on you, but it can only rest on you through the work of Christ where you receive him as your savior, where you acknowledge your own sinfulness and put your trust in Christ, believing that he indeed is the Messiah and indeed did die in order to pay for your sin. That's the essence of the gospel, and the angels, even in this moment, indicate that peace comes to those on whom God's favor rests. Verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. So these shepherds hear the instruction or hear the news and search and make haste to find the Christ child. And then in verses 18 and 19, the pericope ends with the response on the part of Mary and also the response on the part of the shepherds. Verse 18, it says, 
or 19 rather, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. In other words, the whole story had not been revealed to Mary. She didn't fully know all was happening, and so she began to ponder and think of what, of all, what does all of this mean? In verse 18 and 20, we see the shepherds. It says, all who heard it wondered what the shepherds told them. So apparently the shepherds are not only telling Mary and Joseph, but they're communicating to others about what had happened to them. Verse 20, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen, all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So the shepherds were so amazed as to what had happened. They were so filled with joy that they're telling people about it, and their hearts are full of gratitude and thanksgiving. Notice these shepherds become the first evangelists that not only receive the news of the Christ child, but begin sharing the news. And so this is how Luke introduces Jesus to the world. This is how he introduces redemption to the world. He sets the birth of Christ in the midst of human history, in the midst of a political policy regarding the registration of the citizens, He identifies some key elements to the birth of Jesus, records certain dynamics here in order to drive home some very important points about the Christmas story, and for that matter, the broader message regarding the gospel. So what you need to know is that this narrative is more than just the narrative of this Christmas story. It is the beginning of the coming redemption. It's the beginning, or rather the dawn, of the gospel, and it's all happening right here in Luke chapter 2. So, what do we make of this? Let me give you a few things to think about. What is Luke communicating through the details of this story, and what is so special about this scene in biblical history? Let me suggest a number of truths. Number one is this. This text clearly shows us that God rules over all. That he rules over all. The setting of Luke 2 is meant to communicate that in the midst of empire building and the reign of emperors, in the midst of taxation policy, in the midst of other challenges like traveling 85 miles when you're nine months pregnant, these are all set under the sovereign rule of God and his eternal purposes. No matter how great Rome became, When you look at Caesar's ascent to that throne, when you think of Herod's rule over Judea, the relocation of Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem, all of these things were part of God's plan and guided by his sovereign purposes. And we have the pleasure of looking at them now, and we can see how it's all going to work out. And isn't it wonderful to be able to do that? And don't you wish you could do that in your life? But you don't get to. In the midst of all of the chaos, in the midst of all of the brokenness that is in the world, here is God who is quietly working out his plan. Do you need to be reminded about that today? Some of you have things going on in your life right now that you've come to Sunday morning worship, and there's just a heaviness about your soul as you look towards the future, and it's just good to be reminded that in the midst of everything that was going on, God was working out his plan, and he still is doing that. You may have some things coming up in 2016 that look a little fearful or some things that are rather unsettled. I want you to hear Psalm 46. It says this, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. What this text shows us 
is that while most of the world had no idea what had happened in Bethlehem, a sovereign God had already begun to work out his beautiful plan. And you know what, in your life and mine, there are things that God has already set in motion that we don't even know where he's working out his plan for our lives. And so the beautiful story of Luke 2 is a reminder that God rules over it all. Number two, God keeps his promises. Christmas story here also reminds us that part of the beauty here is that God fulfilled a promise related to the Davidic line. In 2 Samuel 7, God promised to David that a, someone from his house would rule forever. And yet the sinfulness of the people of Israel and the people of Judah had led to national destruction. It was a a partial restoration as they came back to Jerusalem, but the king of the Jews at this moment was Herod, and he wasn't even fully Jewish. It looked as if God had forgotten his promises until the advent of Jesus. When you hear the words, the city of David, of the house and lineage of David, those are not just words. Those are the hopeful fulfillment of what God had promised a generation ago. What God had promised, that one day there would be one who would sit on the seat of David as one of his descendants. And the Christmas narrative shows us that it's only a matter of time until God will be true to his word this text reminds us, it reminds me, it reminds you that he can be trusted. His promises can be believed. Do you ever struggle to believe God's promises? Does your trust leak? Because mine does. I mean, I could have a great time in the Word, believe God's promises, walk out of my time with God just feeling so confident, and then have it leak by 3 o'clock almost without even thinking about it. The beautiful thing that we have here is the reminder that God's working through history and that he's... His promises can be trusted and embraced because his promises are sure. 2 Peter 3, 8 says this, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. God keeps his promises. Three, God's plan is full of powerful humility. God's plan is full of powerful humility. The whole story of the gospel here is backwards. It's upside down to how we would normally think. It's, it's the humble who are exalted. It's the proud who are resisted. Or as Mary says in Luke chapter 1, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and he has exalted those of humble estate. So here we have the Savior of the world who arrives in a humble manger in a nondescript village through the womb of an ordinary woman and announced through unimpressive shepherds. That's not the way you change the world, unless you're God. He arrives as a helpless baby, needs to be wrapped in swaddling cloth. This baby will grow up. He'll live as a man. He'll preach about meekness. He'll live a perfect life. He'll die on the cross as a, in the form of a criminal. And he will, according to Philippians 2, humble himself even to the point of the death, even to the point of death, even the death of a cross. 
And his example will not only become the means of salvation for people who put their trust in him, but his example will become the model for how followers of Jesus should live. He will say in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So can I just remind you that this narrative account shows us the beautiful power of humility? You may have some opportunities to put that into practice over the holidays. You may be hanging out with some people who really make you humble. They really humble you. And instead of resisting that, you ought to embrace that and say this is the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so I wanna embrace humility because God, you exalt the lowly. Finally, this text shows us the beautiful fact that good news has now come to all people. While the shepherds were rejoicing, while Mary's pondering, while the angels are declaring the glory of God, they're doing so because a Savior has been announced, a Savior who is both Lord and Christ, and this Savior has been born. And what God has done is he set in motion the deliverance of his people once and for all. The long-awaited deliverer has finally been born, and everything is about to change. In the book of Matthew, chapter one, Joseph is told that this child will be named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The Messiah has come in order to deliver us from our greatest problem, which is our own sinfulness. And that's the good news, that now deliverance through Christ, permanent deliverance, is actually possible. The good news is that this baby lying in a manger will grow up. He'll reveal the will, the will and word of God. He'll prove that he really is the son of God, and then he'll die in order to make it possible for people to be forgiven of their sins. And that message, that good news, is worth reading over and over because we are a broken people, and we live in the midst of a broken world, and we need a savior. This good news is worth sharing even this week, and I pray that you have opportunity to share something about the meaning of Christmas. Luke 2 is more than just a traditional story. It's something more just to be read to get onto the presence. It is the dawn of the gospel. It's the beginning of deliverance. It is the inauguration of the good news that Jesus has come to save us from our sins, that a baby lying in the manger is the dawn of hope because Christ has come to save his people from their sins. That's what Luke 2 is all about. Not just a traditional passage to read, but instead a beautiful narrative that sets the stage for what the gospel is all about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in Christ there is hope of eternal life. There's hope of forgiveness. There's hope of being able to walk with you through every season of life that comes. And we thank you that in Luke we have a great example of the way in which you move and orchestrate all of the events of history. And we thank you that we can rest today knowing that your promises are sure, 
and that you are a God who rules over all, all things in life. So give us the mind and the heart, we pray, of Christ. Make us a people who reflect the beautiful image of Jesus in everything that we do and in our, in our interactions this week with others. Help us to be like Jesus because we've been redeemed by Jesus. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.